Fair warning, the following contains disturbing sexual imagery and criminality. The names and identifying information of the perpetrator of these crimes and of his victim have been changed to protect all concerned. Everyone listening should proceed with a thoughtful consideration of utmost caution. These are real crimes of real offenders. You are traveling through another dimension that is disallowed by religion and tightly regulated by law. It is not explored by science. It is a dimension of sense and pleasure, of terror and the irrational. Our journey takes us into a wondrous and deeply personal land whose boundaries, if they exist at all, are entirely of our own making. Our next stop, Sex Crime Central. His name, Ian O'Toole. His occupation, clergyman for a large multinational organization based out of Europe. The time, mid-flight on a transcontinental journey to a spiritual dimension that is definitely not a part of the standard catechism. At present, bleary-eyed from a lack of sleep and a lifetime of service to his church, Father O'Toole's 65 years are starting to catch up with him. He is currently mid-air on his way to a conference for professionals who manage local community mental health programs. His entire career has been characterized by service to local communities no matter where in the world he's been sent. But tonight, his life's work is funneled down to this one unforgettable flight. His past life's direction had been set by leaders who cared very much about what Father Ian could do for them. They cared very little, as we shall see, for Father Ian himself, or for his needs that they themselves could not acknowledge. Father Ian's needs have now reached a tipping point and can no longer be repressed. His fall from that tipping point will have him embarking on another journey, not of his own choosing. Father Ian will never arrive at his intended destination. Instead, he will take an unexpected detour through a way station known as Sex Crime Central. Father Ian O'Toole looked every inch the senior citizen worn down by a life of service and self-denial. His thinning gray hair was swept back and tied into a ponytail. His shoulders were stooped with the weight of years combined with poor self-care. Portly and dough-faced, his eyes nevertheless twinkled with a ready appreciation for the human condition, and his smile, his smile was infectious as he had always needed it to be when approaching donors for funding-worthy causes. Although he was committed Intense and caring, Father Ian made his way through life largely on autopilot. With a numbed sense of self-awareness, he developed from years of sexual repression. His mind was only gently rigid, not dogmatically so. Rigid with the mental muscle fatigue he needed over the years to keep 
and to hold his many secrets. These secrets began and ended with Father Ian's sexuality. By some strange divine mystery, he had been born gay into a church where being gay was a sin. In other words, his God had made him from the beginning into an object of wrath. A part of the church's fabric, yes, but a part of that fabric that nevertheless contained a permanent stain. As a young boy growing up in his devout family, he had internalized the certain knowledge that his sexuality should never be revealed or discussed. He went under the radar because who he was sexually would never be accepted. In his youngest years, he knew that since he would never be allowed to simply be who he was, a career in the priesthood might be best. At least then, he would be with men who were similarly restrained by their vows. After all, none of his colleagues would be expressing themselves sexually any more than he would. In this way, he could expiate any risk of further sin. And then, how could the good Lord above continue to be angry with him, a man who'd given up everything to serve the church? All of who he was sexually would be locked away forever in a box of thou shalt nots that in the end turned out to be a Pandora's box of plague and curse. But as Ian grew older, the years of attempting to repress his sexuality began to wear thin to the point of transparency. Even in the beginning as a young priest, the repression of his sexuality seemed in need of a little something, a little something to take the edge off. So Father Ian began drinking a few glasses of wine every night. The wine helped at first. He was able to have at least some comfort in the lonely night, or rather, some sense of oblivion. Over time, he began to need more alcohol to numb his desires for sexual pleasure that he knew would always be condemned. But the ever-increasing amounts of alcohol, although personally comforting, lowered the good Padre's inhibitions and impaired his judgment. He began taking risks. They were small ones, at least at first. He had always been taught that masturbation was a serious sin, and he believed it because, well, he had learned never to question the church's doctrines. But the alcohol couldn't fully eliminate his thoughts, and his thought life became both more pleasurable and more tempting. So he drank and he masturbated. He even drank so much and became so impaired that more than a time or two, he actually engaged in the most wonderful, the most amazing experiences of actually touching another human being in a sexual manner. Typically, his partners would be younger men from the community he was serving. After all, they too were looking to keep their sexuality a secret. He would invite them over for the evening, and the two men would end by cuddling through the night. After his sleepovers, the adult companion would usually express an interest in continuing a relationship. This frightened him. A relationship that could never be. To drown out the amazing memories of the evening and the all-too-wonderful idea of actually having an adult relationship, he began to drink more. He resolved that he would not ever again touch or be touched in a sexual manner. To achieve this, he continued to self-medicate with the alcohol, 
that continued to relax him. It helped with the guilty memories as well. He recommitted himself to his vows of abstinence and to never entertaining the idea of having a relationship the way other human beings did. After his discovering the internet, a new aid in his quest to avoid human touch, certainly the touch he craved the most of all, internet porn became his regular go-to. He was always interested in the adult porn because, after all, adult sexual acts depicted the sort of adult love that he craved, that he needed, and that he would never allow himself to have. He was assigned by his superiors the management of a mental health treatment center. He loved the work because he was kind and he had always taken joy from helping people. At night, he would go to his home, to his bottle, and to his computer, and this lifestyle became his normal sex life. What Father Ian didn't realize is how very abnormal his behavior was becoming. By the time he got on the plane that would take him to his conference, he'd already started drinking a bit. He drank more after getting on the plane, and then, as night fell and the lights were turned off, he opened his computer as he did every night, and snuggled with himself under the airline blanket. With the drinking, the dark, and his blanket covering him, Father Ian believed he had all the privacy he needed for a little me-time. What didn't register with Father Ian was the fact that he was on a commercial aircraft with hundreds of other people, including those seated right next to him who could see his computer monitor's rather graphic images featuring men doing together things that his fellow travelers had never imagined, much less seen before. His furtive movements under the thin blanket over his lap were not subtle in the least, and it was readily apparent what he was doing. It didn't help matters that he was on an aisle seat that allowed staff and other passengers going to the laboratory, a clearer view than they had ever wanted to see of both what he was looking at and what he was doing. Father Ian never made it to his destination. Masturbating in public is a crime. Masturbating in public on an aircraft flying at 30,000 feet is a federal crime. His arrest was the end of everything he'd worked for, the end of a life based on pathological self-denial, but his arrest was a new beginning. Welcome to The Debriefing. It's good to have you with us as we try to sort out how it is that people end up failing to manage their sexuality intelligently. This part of Sex Crime Central's version of true crime is a bit different than most. It is certainly different than what happens out there in the so-called real world, where sex crimes are considered so horrific that they become inhuman and perpetrators are painted as monsters. They're not monsters. They're rarely truly predatory, although people like to call them that. Most of the time, if we understand their stories, those committing sex crimes are clearly not so much predatory as they are truly pathetic, truly sad. If we understand their stories, we can learn how to predict sex problems and the sex crimes that result. This would enable us to learn how to prevent these crimes and the problems that lead to them. As we debrief this case, Bear in mind, we're not looking to excuse anyone's behavior. 
Many people who try to understand how a behavior came about are accused of being as bad as the criminal who committed the crime. This is a defensive move by those who are frightened of sex crimes. They are too frightened to truly regard them closely and see how on any given day these terrible stories could be our stories, or even their stories. Their fear is the result of one thing, ignorance. We remain ignorant through our lack of discussion of these matters. Many willfully cling to their ignorance because they are afraid of even the possibility that they too might understand behaviors that they consider monstrous. Theirs is a medieval view where bad people do bad things. Why? Well, because they're bad, of course. As always in our debrief, we bear in mind Jung's words, we do not become enlightened by imagining figures of light, but by making the darkness conscious. Sex Crime Central is not so much about the crime porn entertainment as it is an opportunity to train our minds, an opportunity to make our inner darkness into a conscious part of who we are. At Sex Crime Central, we invite you to remain as aware of criminal conduct as possible without ever feeling the need to attend to that conduct with the shock and disgust of our everyday newspapers. We seek to overcome the reaction that says, God, I don't understand why people do such horrible things. If you listen, you will understand. And because no good deed goes unpunished, your increased understanding of sexual criminality will be viewed suspiciously. Do not be afraid. This is a necessary step. So how did Father Ian get to where he's doing a pantomime of the movie Snakes on a Plane? He, like most convicted of sex crimes, was born a perfectly normal baby. It was not the case that he, at some time in his youth, dreamed of growing up to become a registered sex offender. So can we explain how this intelligent man could make such a highly flawed decision that led to his arrest? Well, it turns out we can. Father Ian's first step was taken when he was still quite young, when he was taught not to question, but to believe, to believe in a faith where the rules are vastly more important than the people the rules were meant to serve. As he grew older, he became more aware that his own sexual interests were deviant, dirty, sinful. Ian was born around the same time that researcher Alfred Kinsey was publishing data indicating that people attracted to the same sex were a normal and very predictable part of the distribution of normal human sexuality in every population. If we were to perform a thought experiment, unthinkable except to extremists, a thought experiment in which we could identify and then isolate or even exterminate every single person with a same-sex attraction, what would happen in the very next generation? What would happen, of course, is that the previous distribution of sexual orientations would be exactly reproduced, and all of this would be performed by heterosexual couples. The last step of Father Ian on his way to his crime was to learn to embrace drinking as a primary self-administered medication 
for his depressed feelings of loneliness and his anxiety about his loveless existence. What could our community have done to prevent this sex crime? Some people get caught up in a distracting aspect of this discussion in which they say, I know lots of people in that church or lots of priests who've never done anything like that. This criticism is based on the misunderstanding that we're somehow seeking causes of criminality. But the truth is that the decision to commit a crime is just that, a decision. Nothing causes decisions. Nothing causes crime. Those ideas simply don't make sense. What all of us know to be true, however, is that not all upbringings provide the same nurturance. Sometimes the way we're raised actually contributes to a degradation of our capacity for good judgment. It is this degradation of our ability to make good decisions that is the subject here. For example, raising a child in a home full of drug-addicted behaviors is, as every parent knows, likely to result in that child growing up into an adult with an impaired sense of judgment. This is not a big leap. This is not rocket science. In this case, we have criminogenic variables, the variables that contribute to impaired judgment, which in turn leads to crime, that include being born gay in a time when being gay was still considered a mental illness, being born gay into a family that was understandably afraid of a sexual orientation that was both mentally ill by man's standards and sinful by heavens. His family's hostility to his own sexuality led Ian to repress that sexuality. Repressing sexuality means that we hold it down to where it becomes practically invisible to all concerned, including the individual. Consequently, any hope Ian might have had to learn how to manage his sexuality intelligently was left on the floor of the house of ignorance and bigotry. It is understandable that Ian used alcohol to soothe himself in his misery. Alcohol, too, however, does not cause sexual criminality. Lots of alcohol does, however, diminish our capacity for good judgment. Lastly, let us not forget the chronic loneliness and sadness Ian lived with. He likely was clinically depressed at the time of the offense, and this clinical depression is also a criminogenic variable that impairs our capacity for good judgment. Currently in the United States, virtually every sex education program, if one is allowed to even exist at all, is carefully censored by religion so that only anatomy, body parts, physiology, what the parts do, sexual diseases, and how pregnancy occur are the only subjects allowed to be taught. This mechanistic view of human sexuality is utterly separated from our humanity. It treats human sexuality as if it were simply a matter of parts, as if the curriculum were designed by a car mechanic. We could actually teach the truth that same-sex attractions are part of the normal differences in orientation reflected in all human populations. This teaching would free people like Ian to be more self-accepting and would free him and the rest of us from the stigma of sexism, from the stigma of homophobia. Ian, 
and all the rest of us would then be free to look at his sexuality and how he might manage it in a manner that was both humane and honorable. Religion could be a part of the solution. Religion could teach that God has made us as we are, not as we might wish we could be. Religions of the world could examine their homophobia with a critical eye, examining to see whether or not homophobia is an indigenous part of their faith or perhaps a later add-on, as it seems to be. Religion could become, as Psalm 119 verse 105 says, a lamp unto my feet, a light unto my path. Religions in general could begin a process of self-examination with an open-minded approach to the question of whether they have actually and accurately understood the mind and the thoughts of the Almighty. If, in fact, homosexually oriented individuals are made, as seems to be the case, then the phrase lifestyle choice needs to be retired. Furthermore, if homosexually oriented individuals are, in fact, born that way, then blaming them for having made a sinful choice makes no sense whatsoever. This way of thinking needs to be discarded, along with beliefs such as that of witches needing to be burned, or that disease is the result of sex with demons. My own confidence is that the so-called true believers out there will always and ever continue to stake out their territory of sexual ignorance on the grounds of staying faithful, rather than ever admit that they might have got this bit of sexuality wrong over the years. What steps could Ian have taken to protect himself from such an outcome? If nothing in our society were to change, then people outside of the majority's sexual orientation will struggle. The only remedy for such people is to read, to become more knowledgeable about sexuality, to talk to safe people safely about their own sexuality, and to give themselves permission to question everything that simply doesn't seem to be working for them. After all, it's not as though our bodies were designed to betray us or to plague us. Normal human sexuality can always be managed intelligently and honorably. We just have to start teaching one another, and most especially our children, that this goal is a worthy one, a necessary one. That teaching how to manage human sexuality intelligently, yes, it's a thing. In contrast to this vision of the future, the way that we currently educate our children leads us to conclude that there is no way the Ians of this world, or anyone else for that matter, are getting the help that they need in order to become healthy and happy adults. In fact, we seem to be producing this sort of sexual offender as quickly as we can on virtually an industrial scale. Counselors like me should, perhaps, start paying bird dog fees to local churches and school districts for all their help in my gaining new patients. Father Ian O'Toole was born a perfectly healthy and normal child. Instead of getting what he needed, however, he was indoctrinated into a worldview that taught him to despise the most personal, the most intimate part of who he was. 
Over time, he became an accomplice to this betrayal. Over time, the only way he could cope with the loss of his sexual identity was to embrace ignorance, substance abuse, depression, and perpetual loneliness. That's all it took to pay the price for a ticket to Sex Crime Central. You're listening to Sex Crime Central with psychotherapist Stephen Ng. This has been an Ng Intellectual production with editing by Steve Cooper and original score by Octophonics. Follow Stephen on Twitter at Stephen Ng MFT or visit StephenNg.com for more information. Don't forget to subscribe to Sex Crime Central and leave us a review with your thoughts on each episode. We'd love to hear from you.